Hey everyone, welcome back to our channel. If you're joining us for the first time, make sure to hit that subscribe button for deep dives down the rabbit hole of history, captivating interviews and conversations that make you think. Asians have also found themselves in danger on their way to and from work. The whole situation was very, very well organized. Almost a kind of paramilitary type of organization um, acted behind this whole attack. They waited until the workers came out of this um, brewery and they were systematically attacked very viciously. My name is Prithi Dillon and I'm a researcher, a writer and a historian. Uh, and I wrote a book called The Shoulders We Stand On, How Black and Brown People Fought for Change in the UK from the 60s to the 80s. These were movements that fought against racism and, and capitalism in all areas of life. I mean, you come to look at it this way, when all beating drops is at, there ain't gonna be enough work for the whites, let alone the blacks. We got enough, our job now to get a working wage. If we don't get our bit of overtime, we can't live. If they come down here, they'll work all hours God give them. Today, we delve deep into those lesser known chapters of Britain's history, bringing to light the struggles and triumphs that have significantly influenced the UK's social political fabric. We all won't be out of work if they start coming on, they'll start ruling the country before long, won't they? What would you think about coloured people coming to work on the buses? I don't like the idea very much. Why not? I would like to work with them at night. With the insights of author Preeti Dillon, world journey through pivotal moments and movements, including the IWA, Bristol Bus Boycott, Black Power, Mangrove Nine, and many, Personally, many I couldn't see it working out. It might, but it does, it does in other towns, but I don't think it would in Bristol, because I think the racial feeling is worse here than in, in any other town. But one might wonder what drove Preeti to spotlight this specific era and those particular stories. That was inspired by uh, seeing Angela Davis speak, the, the black American um, activist, academic, all-around extraordinaire. Um, so she was speaking at an International Women's Day event, and movements are her thing. And she was mentioning all of these movements from the, the U.S. civil rights context that I'd never heard of, um, like the um, for the Montgomery bus boycott. Uh, a large part of that success were domestic workers, female domestic workers. And I mean, I like yourself. I, you know, I've studied history and fancy myself a historian. I studied American history, and I'd never heard of these movements. And I thought them just must have been also something in the UK. You know, every every Black History Month, we talk about Martin Luther King, we talk about Rosa Parks, and which who are fantastic, and you know, we well worthy of our study. But you know, one Angela Davis Davis cautions against just focusing on exceptional individuals. And uh, two, I thought there must have been something in the UK we can look at. And so I started scratching the surface and all of these movements just poured out. Um, there were just so, so many. I was like, I thought I'd have to really search for it. But actually, they're, they're right there. They're, there's a lot written about these movements, either in academia or like local history projects. Um, so there's information out there um, if you want to find it. And... Then I also found a lot of these things took place in Southall, where, where I grew up. And no one had ever spoken about it. I had, I had no idea. Like I say, I had these kind of vague uh, inklings. I um, had some idea of some names that might have been important, but didn't know what it all meant. And so the part of that lent itself to, um, to looking at the, the 60s to 80s in particular, um, at this kind of era of, of civil rights in the US as well. Um, but for me, it was also really about trying to figure out what happened before I was born. What what was the UK that I was born into? 
Now, I was born in the late 80s, and but in, in school, we only stayed up to 1945. Right? 1945, and we did that a lot. Um, the Second World War especially, a lot. Um, but, you know, as it is then, nothing happened after that. And so I really wanted to try and fill in some of these gaps of what happened then. You know, what happened before I was born? What was the UK I was I was born into? Um, because I came of age during during Tony Blair's new Labour government. And that gave me a very distorted idea of what life in the UK is like. Um, and if anything, that was, well, not that that was great anyway, but that was also kind of a blip, actually, um, in, yeah, from the kind of 50s onwards um, and what we can see um, of what happened in the UK. So, you know, many, many reasons, but it was, for me, the 60s to 80s were definitely filling, filling in these gaps and movements to try and show um, to try and get away from this individual exceptionalism that we that we like to focus on. I was just uh, scanning through the review copy that I had the privilege to read, and there was just something that I noted in the um, that I had noted down when I was reading it, which thing is worth sharing. Which was, it's a book that the author shares the moments and stories kept away from us to make sense of the present, and I think that was kind of the nicest way of condensing it into a nutshell to say actually I think anyone of a particular actually anyone it doesn't even need to be a particular generation or a particular um background or anything i think if anyone was to read this book the amount that they would understand would increase almost exponentially because so many things were clicking into place as i was reading through this and obviously we'll get through the book and kind of cover some of the ground but it's from everything from like healthcare to education to housing to like you name it and there's some type of issue and movement going on there and one thing that I found quite um shocking because we definitely don't hear of it is how pivotal and influential women were in most of these movements if not all of these movements um obviously that also ties into perhaps some of the social economic kind of conditions of the time but it's still something that is really really underreported um and just on the book as as i was mentioning earlier i've had the privilege to read eight out of the 11 chapters and it's nothing short of remarkable and i'm not just saying that because you're on this podcast i'm saying this because it's genuinely an amazingly good read not just because of how easy it is to read it but just because of the amount that you learn um and i didn't feel at any point that i wanted to put the book down for anyone then seeking a profound understanding of history of black and brown communities in the uk this book is essential reading it meticulously charts significant events and movements like police brutality and the community's response in the 80s, the Indian Workers Association, Bristol Bus Boycott, Black Power, Mangrove Nine. Some of these groups and organizations I never heard of until I read your book, like the Fasimbas, the Oval Four, Black Liberation Front, uh, Black Education Movement, Brixton Black Women's Group, and this list goes on and on. You've got OWAD, Brunswick Strike, the Battle of Brick Lane, Asian Youth Movements, and the Bradford 12. Now, that's a hell of a lot. It covers more than just that. It covers racialized medical care and education. And ingeniously, one thing that I only realized yesterday was the story actually culminates back where it starts, which is in 1981. Now, I wanted to ask for someone who's had to then write about all of these groups. And I'm sure you've had to research about a hell of a lot more as well, because only 10 have been included in the book, is what are some of those pivot, most pivotal moments in the history you cover for yourself and why? Um, yeah, it's a really good question. Um, yeah, absolutely. There was a lot, um, <laughs> a lot of research that was done. And I'm really also glad that you brought up um, the role of women 
so that one of the first movements I came across and I think has had a really big influence that uh, that we really should know about um, in the kind of public imagination uh, is the Grunwick strike. And so this strike was led by a group of brown women. And these are brown women who'd come over mostly from East Africa, which is important in context because these are women who were used to a certain way of life, who had been um, often didn't do paid work outside the home, were very middle class or higher class in East Africa. And they were then exiled, came over to the UK and had to, for the, some of them the first time, do paid work outside the home. And they weren't going to accept the same kinds of standards that um, some of the other populations had unfortunately gotten, gotten used to. Um, and so a group of women found themselves employed at the Gromwick factory, which was in northwest London. This is a photo processing factory. Um, so, I mean, I don't know if you're, I'm going to age myself here. I don't know if you're the same, same age, but um, when you used to like send off your camera films uh, in envelopes to get them yeah, processed. So that was done at places like, like Rodwick. And the factory specifically employed brown women. They sought brown women. It was actually run by a brown manager. Uh, George Ward, which brings it a whole nother uh, level uh, to the conversation. And he even turned white women away saying, oh, you won't like the kind of wages we, we pay you here. And pregnant women weren't allowed to go to the doctors. People weren't allowed to go to the toilet. There was compulsory overtime. And one of the workers, Jabin, decided she at one point she had had enough. And so she stormed out on this really, really hot in the middle of this hot, hot summer of 1976. Um, where they've been working really long hours to get everyone's kind of summer photos processed. And on this one Friday in August, she, she storms out. And by Monday, there were a small group of uh, workers who had joined her and they all went on strike. And so they didn't know anything about striking. They joined a union, um, had some support from the local uh, trades union um, um, su support group. And they they went on the picket line, and they were called the the strikers and saris, uh, kind of pejoratively by by um, by the papers, um, because they were standing there. The photos are amazing. They're standing there on the picket line with their saris and their cardigans when the when the weather kind of set in. But they knew that they needed more support um, than just the kind of hundred of them, the twenty percent of them of the workforce that were on the picket line. Um, and so they got the postal workers involved um, because this was a, a the factory needed postal um, support. So the postal workers went on strike. Um, but then they were told that they couldn't do that by by their union. It was illegal to actually not deliver post. So they had to had to go back to work. Um, so then they went around the country. These the small group of workers, mostly brown women, went around the country um, and spoke at foundries, at mills, at factories, at, at the docks and they rallied the nation's working class and it's important at this point to say that at this they, they were fighting at this moment just for union rights so they weren't saying necessarily us as brown workers in some in some segments they were they were saying us as brown workers are being treated in such a way but it was mostly a focus on union rights and getting union recognition at the factory and so as long as it was a, a fight for union rights then they could get this support Thousands of people joined them. At the height, 20,000 people from all over the country came and joined them on the picket line, um, including Arthur Scargill and the miners from, from Yorkshire, including Labour MPs, including other minor celebrities. Um, and the reason this was 
such a turning point. Um, I'm going to give a spoiler to uh, to to your listeners, but they weren't successful, unfortunately. After two years of striking, they were not successful. But it was the first time there was a real show of solidarity um, with with brown workers. There were other examples from other years where the unions had not been behind brown workers at all, I mean, especially brown brown women. And it was the first time that the unions were really on board. It was the first time that uh, the rest of the working class were really uh, showing the solidarity with brown women. And it really showed the nation that, oh, okay, brown women aren't just meek and submissive and we have to kind of pay attention. Um, And so it was a real turning point for that. But also um, it was a turning point in what was to come in that um, Margaret Thatcher, who was then the leader of the Conservatives, she was watching very closely. And it was partly because of what happened at Grunwick that she introduced um, her trade union legislation um, in the 80s. And so a lot, a lot, the ripple effects from Grunwick um, were huge, um, despite the fact that they weren't successful. And we can we can see those effects yeah, for the decades to come. I guess, first of all, why do you think that part of British history has been kind of sidelined? And then equally, whilst you were researching and organizing the content of this book, were there any organizations or movements that you couldn't include? Yes, both uh, really good questions. I mean, I constantly scratched my head whilst I was putting the book together as to why don't we know about this? Uh, To the point where I thought, okay, maybe we don't know about this because actually I'm not onto something. Maybe it's not worth knowing, you know, because if it was, then surely we'd know about it by now. Um, but after I started speaking to a few people, I thought, oh, no, 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 that's, that's, that's not the reason. Um, unfortunately, I think it's the same, uh, reason as to why we don't talk about things like empire. You know, if we, if we talk about anti-racism, we have to talk about racism. We have to delve into those, um, kind of less uh, positive aspects and quite overtly negative aspects of British history and people don't necessarily want to do that a lot of people aren't comfortable um, getting into that it's why we focus on on the successes in in British history or if we talk about um, kind of failures as it were or what we've done in a more negative light then that's from centuries ago and so we don't really have necessarily the same um, moral uh, connection to it and so I think that if we talk about these movements, if we talk about what happened in the 60s to 80s, then we have to talk about the state. We have to talk about the state's complicity in what was going on. Not even the state's complicity, but the state's um, kind of active uh, participation. We have to talk about things like the police um, and and police brutality and the fact that it was the police who killed a protester, Blair Peach, in Southall in 1979, which was then covered up, called a death by misadventure. And even though the report has now been released from the police saying that it was indeed one of the police, that still nothing has been done. We have to have those conversations and no one wants to. And in terms of other other movements, um, I think I there was there was um, a lot around the Black Parents movement that I couldn't I mentioned them, but they are definitely worth um, a chapter or so in themselves. The Black Parents movement was also another wide-ranging movement that focused on education and police brutality, and they also worked closely with the Black Students Movement. I think the other... I I also would have wanted to focus perhaps a bit more on, on women's movements. There were 
more women's movements that um, that could have also, again, had chapters in themselves. Um, organizations like the South for Black Sisters, for example, who are still going today, and they started in 1979. Um, so yeah, it was, a, it was a tough call of uh, who, who makes the cut. But the good thing is, is that I'm really hopeful that there will be more like this. So this isn't going to be the only book on this era and these movements, um, that there's still so much more um, to be said. I think the bit that... Um, it wasn't a surprise in that it happened, but it was a surprise in the scale of it, which was the drug that was being administered uh, disproportionately to brown and black women. Um, Depth. Depro something? Depo Provera, yeah. That's it. I couldn't remember the name off the top of my head, unfortunately. Um, so for those listening, could you explain the history of that and how it eventually kind of is, I guess, exposed and stopped? Because the book does continue to say that that drugs, it does still exist and, and is still administered, but not necessarily in the way it was. So yeah, what is going on there? Yeah, I think so. There were a few times, I mean, you know, researching about racism is pretty heavy going um, at the best of times. Um, but there were some times which really kind of had to stop in my day early and knock, knock me off my feet and had to go and take a long walk. And and this was one of them. Um, so yeah, the contraception, Depo Provera, is a, an injectable contraception. And it was developed in the US um, in the late uh, 70s. But it wasn't actually approved for use there because the side effects were seemed to be quite um, quite harsh. I mean, at its worst, it was seen to perhaps cause cancer. Um, at at best, it would cause um, the stop, stopping of periods, um, but even can cause sterility. Um, and but despite all this, it was actually approved for use in the UK under two very limited circumstances. Um, one was if um, a partner had had a vasectomy and waiting for for that to take effect. Or if um, a woman had had um, a certain vaccination um, and where it was dangerous to get pregnant during that time. Um, but despite, and also, it could also be administered at a doctor's discretion. And so it was under this doctor's discretion um, that it was soon discovered that it was uh, disproportionately administered to black and brown women. Um, and not just administered to them, but administered to them without their consent. So... Uh, in one circumstance, for example, um, there was a black girl who um, had a surgery, minor surgery for something else. And then she woke up and had also been found that she'd been been uh, given this contraception. Um, and it was essentially a form of uh, population control through the uterus. So by this point, by the late 70s, immigration control had all but stopped primary immigration. People were coming, still coming over. These were family members and dependents, um, and because there was all there was kind of all the control that could be in place there, um, then it was essentially yeah population control uh, in another way. And doctors said as much, um, and they were also said, oh, there's no point talking to um, to Asian women about barrier methods because they don't know where their vaginas are, and so this was happening not also just to black and brown women but to white working class women as well. Um, there was one doctor in, in Glasgow in particular who was administering it to, um, yeah, to tens of, uh, of working class um, white women. And she had like a point system. Whereas if, if you had uh, a lower education, then you'd kind of 
be more eligible, bumped up the list to to get this um this um uh, contraception. And it was the black and brown women's groups um, who realized this was happening um, and started to cause um, cause a ruckus. Um, and they also it was also a rare example of working with white women's groups as well on this thing called the Ban the Jab campaign. And so black women were talking about it at the kind of annual conferences of the at the OAD annual conferences. And they wrote about it in their newsletters. Black women use their position in the NHS to bring it to people's attention. The idea was trying to raise awareness that it was happening, um, to get people to question their doctors and not just accept any um, any sort of injections, and also to ultimately stop the practice. Um, and so when the pharmaceutical company applied uh, for a license for it to be more widely available, um, and then the Committee on the Safety of Medicine said, yeah, 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 that's fine. Yeah, go ahead. We give you our approval. Um, it was the first time in in their history that the Minister for Health actually said, no, 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 time out. I'm not going to approve this, which was huge. Um, even though he refused to admit it was because of this um, political attention it had been getting, um, this was huge. And so the committee had to do more investigations. It wasn't just uh, rubber stamped, as was the usual process. And then the pharmaceutical company eventually appealed via the courts um, and they won that appeal. And so it became more widely available in the UK, but under the proviso that informed consent was sought, including uh, having translation support when necessary. Um, and it also couldn't be used whilst a mother was breastfeeding in the first, um, I think, six weeks or so, because it was also shown to otherwise affect, um, affect milk and therefore affect the baby. So, I mean, it was um, a huge campaign. It still is a huge campaign in some parts of the world. Um, and that was the other thing that the uh, black women's groups did was to bring attention to how it was being used in other parts of the world. Like a lot of pharmaceuticals, Deepa Provera was tested around the world. Uh, it was tested in, um, in Jamaica, in um, lots of parts of sub-Saharan Africa, like Zimbabwe and South Africa. Um, in New Zealand, it was tested on Pacific Islanders, and black women were at the forefront of bringing this also to attention, never forgetting the kind of international ramifications um, of how it was used. Um, but yeah, it's actually it's still in use today. It's still available um, in in the UK and and worldwide. Um, and it's yeah, it's a very it was a very insidious. Um, period of, of of history for sure but it also really I think explains why there is such a distrust of of the medical system I mean we know the uh, stats and figures today as well for things like black maternal health and brown maternal health um, we know things like COVID the rate of uh, the take of the COVID vaccination is quite low and is it any wonder is it any wonder really uh, when you've had things like this that were happening I just wanted to ask, how did these groups figure out that this drug was being used disproportionately to them? Yeah, it's a really good question. I don't know the exact mechanisms. I think the, what I could say is, is like, because there was a lot of discussion and because I think um, with the networks that existed at the time that don't exist today, um, I think... It would probably have come, yeah, come out pretty quickly, especially with um, the number of black women who are working in the NHS and and kind of also saw saw firsthand. 
Um, probably also some of these women were actually uh, offered the <laughs> the jab themselves. I think it was something that um, people were particularly um, kind of looking aware of in terms of both their treatment, uh, especially around their reproductive health. So whilst the women's liberation movement, who was mainly composed of white women, were campaigning for access to abortions, for example, black women were like, no, 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 actually, we want, we don't want to campaign for abortions. We can get really easily get abortions. If anything, we want to have children. So it was all part of this wider, wider system as well that they were very, very attuned to. How did or how do your own personal experiences and your background, how did they influence your approach to writing the book? Yeah, it's funny because I actually, even though I just, there's like the Blair Peach School, for example, in Southall, um, and, but I didn't really know about any of this growing up, which I think then actually was the catalyst because when I started researching um, and I came across Glenwick and then I started coming across um, other things and yeah, what happened in Southall and I was like, hang on a second. Like this is exactly when you know my my parents were around, my family was around, and I've not heard of any of this. And I'm starting to ask my cousins, and they're like, "No, no, we haven't heard about these things either." And then I'd ask my parents, they're like, "Oh yeah, yeah, we were there. Yeah, yeah, yeah." <laughs> I was like, "Oh yeah, we used to go on these marches and things." I'm like, "What? You haven't said you anything." Never told my dad's me. like, "You know, I was bust." Like, what? I, I mean, yeah, yeah and yeah. we had I had no idea because. A lot of that generation, you know, because it's they want to say the past is the past. They don't want to burden us with it, um, and kind of just keep keep the head down and and carry on. Um, and so I think yeah, a lot of my kind of motivation, um, yeah, I was really interested in, in researching the history of of Southall and beyond, and obviously the women's history as well. But I think more widely, it was just what would help me understand the UK as it is today. Like, what is it? What is going on? I was so confused in 2016 when, when the Brexit vote happened and then this rise in um, racist violence. And I just, like, I had no context for any of this. I, it felt so out of place. And so I really wanted to understand why the Conservative Party keeps getting voted in and why is it that they're allowed to get away with a lot of the things that they say, as we've seen in the last few weeks as well. And so I found all those answers in in this history and in these movements, and so that guided um, a lot of my a lot of my research. I'm glad that you uh, said that you put the book together in order to make more sense of today, because that's exactly the impression I got reading it. And it's just brilliant that kind of the objective that you um, started off with is exactly what you managed to push through this book. And it genuinely is like a, it is something that I think everyone should have on their bookshelves. I've still got three chapters left, but the eight that I've got through, absolutely brilliant. Um, and I've I've been annotating it and writing notes and all sorts in the sidelines. <laughs> you know better than I do at this and, point. <laughs> and yeah, and putting in these little tabs and stuff just to get on top of it. And it's it's yeah, it's honestly a brilliant book to the point where I'm actually understanding more of the contents that context even that my family grew up in or my family arrived in. Now, how do you think legacies of empire and colonialism have shaped? the experiences of black and brown communities in the UK. Before I put that aside, though, I wanted to also highlight that what's really interesting, especially in the kind of early movements I discuss in the book, um, things like the Bristol bus boycott and uh, the Mangrove Nine and, and black power, is that a lot of um, the people involved in those movements were born in the colonies. 
And they were born also as they saw resistance to the empire in those colonies. And so they brought those politics over with them. Also with the Indian Workers Association, they brought over independence politics. And so they were they were primed and trained and ready. Um, they, the leader of the British Black Panthers, Althea Jones Laquan, she was involved in politics in Trinidad and her whole family was. Um, her sister, unfortunately, um, died because of her involvement in, in the movement in Trinidad. And so they brought those politics over with them. Um, and that's what spurred them on um, when they first got to the UK to, uh, to imagine something different and to resist. Um, and I think that's really important context because that is obviously the, the beginning um, of all of these, these movements that I'm talking about. Um, and creates that model then for, for those to come. Um, and then in terms of the next generations that were then born and raised in the UK, had no aspirations to kind of go back to the mother country um, as some of the, the initial migrants did. Um, I mean, it's impossible to get away from uh, empire and colonialism. I think at its most base level, the fact is that even without that, even with that, sorry, um, a lot of white Brits do not think that um, brown and black people deserve to be here, even though they came here as British citizens on the same as the same rights. Um, they were not seen as as equal. I mean, there's a whole, the whole the the famous adage of you know we are here because you were there, and that still holds today. Um, we see ramifications of it. Um, all the time, obviously, in the Windrush generation now and um, the horrific deportations that have been happening. Um, on a personal note, I had to, um, my, my daughter was born abroad and having to apply for her passport was uh, a six-month saga because trying to prove how my parents have their citizenship when they are born in India and Kenya. And I'm like, well, you colonize them. <laughs> you know this information. You have this information, but having to try and prove that back to the state um, under these immigration laws that were designed to be designed to keep people like me out um, was very, very jarring. And so this continues to kind of wrap its tendrils, its tentacles around us in ways that we can't even imagine. It's the even from things like um, black women when they join the NHS. Uh, when they first came over, they were only allowed to join at a lower level. They could, they were never allowed to join um, at a certain, kind of a higher level with with higher pay, even though they were fully qualified to do so. And so it's it's so it's a lot of the reason why um, well, black and brown people and certain communities within black and brown communities have worse poverty outcomes, have worse educational outcomes, have worse um, health outcomes. I mean, it's not uh, it's not our fault, <laughs> and I think that was a really big um, a really big kind of uh, insight that I had from from researching the book. I'm like, hang on a second, this is all designed this way. It's not because you know this is all part of yeah part of the master plan to kind of to to keep us inferior essentially. And then it's, it might sound really quite uh, crude or quite basic, and I think that's because actually it is. I mean, if you look at a lot of the language that the MPs used then and the MPs use now, talking about swarms of people and hurricanes of people, 
Like, it is very crude and it is very basic. Well, what is it? Braverman gave that speech recently where, and it was dubbed the new Enoch Powell's, uh, what is it, Rivers of Blood. Rivers of Blood. Yeah, yep. it was. It's so, it's, and if you actually do put the two commas, the two speeches side by side, uh, Suella Braverman's is far more right wing and, and insanely populist in its use of language and, and kind of essentially dehumanizing anyone who is trying to seek refuge. So now funny enough on that, because actually after Enoch Powell made that speech, he was kind of sidelined from the conservatives. But, you know, there's no consequences for Braverman, We're right? Definitely never gonna see anything like that happen nowadays, right? Um I just wanted to go back to something that you said about um how a lot of these people had come from colonies and they had been born in, in abroad essentially and then come to the UK. Now it's interesting because I often have a conversation with my dad and he was born in Kenya and came over in the 70s as a result of Idi Amin kicking everyone out of Uganda and there was some, the hit with my grandfather was related to politics or something so it, they had to leave anyway. Um, and often we get into a conversation with that that generation has a particular understanding that our generation lacks in that they've come from some other culture. They've come from another world, so to speak. And I've never actually put it in the way that you did, but the way that you like put it out, which was actually, it was because of that framing and context that kind of gave them an ability or a fire to say, hold on this, we're not dealing with this. We like, we deserve more. Um, and I was saying to my, my my dad that once that generation who are now sadly passing away is gone, we're now down to then the first like full generation, so to speak, where we're all born in a, we're all essentially ho like in a home from home. Because I don't necessarily feel British, but there's no way I would feel Kenyan and I don't necessarily feel Indian. Uh, and then my mom's side of the family are Hindu, Bengali and white, blonde hair, blue eyed Christians. So... I don't really fit in with Bummans and I don't fit in with like Christians, right? Like blonde hair, blue eyed, that's not. So it's just really interesting at how, and I really like the way that you, you kind of turned that almost around to say, hold on. Actually, it's because of that heritage and background and context that helped them come here and, and kind of change things. Um, and like, yeah, I'd, I'd never quite viewed it like that so and, have to say and it's really you. interesting because then we see in the late 70s when that first generation kind of born in the uk starting to come of age they're the ones then at the vanguard of the new movements like the asian youth movements um that kind of came about partly because they were unhappy with um what the old 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 folk were doing with things like the indian workers association because they're like no, no 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 we're british we were born here we're not going anywhere we we need to like to to really fight for our right to be here because we we belong here as much as anyone else does um yeah no you're right it's really it's really interesting yeah absolutely kind of that that generation who are um yeah born elsewhere um yeah also no longer be with us and that history makes a lot of sense in the context of why then as a child my dad would always say you have to be twice as good as your white counterpart yeah. And I would always be like, what the f like, and I just thought like, oof, I'm sure most brown people listening to this can, uh, can relate, which is the pressure to do well academically or something as a child, you're just like, for fuck's sake, leave me yeah. alone. I just want to go to school and be a child. 
obviously you get older and you're like, I am so glad my parents did that. And I'm <laughs> so glad my dad told me that. Because actually, you don't realize. And then when you have those instances where you're like, hold on, did I just get like ignored or passed over because of my color rather than my ability is devastating for a child. But to be given that kind of mentality of, look, just perform twice as good as everyone else and you'll be fine. It's a sad reality in that we have to do that, but it also makes sense, like the history of, of where they've come from, what they've had to deal with. Like some of the stories my dad's told me about trying to get jobs when he first came here, um, applying to work at a, I think it was a Holiday Inn in Leicester or a hotel in Leicester. And the guy said to my dad, he could have the job as long as he cut his beard and took his turban off. Yeah. And my dad was like, well, fuck this one, I'm out. And eventually that's burned him on to, um, set up his own business and and things worked out and like I literally we're now standing on his shoulders thanks to the work that he's done um yeah but yeah that the, and hence why I find your book that interesting because it doesn't just make sense of history in terms of this narrative that's out there but it makes sense of my own life and makes sense yeah. of like my own family and that I yeah. think is 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 really unique like not a lot of books kind of have that type of personal connection um come please oh okay so the few few questions left um i'm maybe gonna leave this one to a little bit later but let me to- ask you this so based on your research and the stories you've uncovered what do you think are the key factors or catalysts that lead to real lasting change in society Yeah, I think there were two main main factors. I think this is also um, this kind of a similar answer I give when thinking about what we can take from the movements today. And one of them is solidarity. Like some people have asked me why I chose to focus on black and brown movements and not kind of one or the other. And um, I'm like, well, there's, there's, there's no choice. I mean, the, this era was this incredible solidarity. Like two two members of the Black Panther core executive committee were were brown. Um, if my cover uh, for for those who are watching and not um, not listening, like I love this cover because it shows Barbara Beast, who was a Black Panther, in the East End of London supporting the Bengalis. And she's there with her son, which I love, this kind of intergenerational aspect of it. And on the other side of her son, unfortunately cut off, but it is Marla Sen, who was one of the Black Panthers. And she's holding yeah, the other hand of her son. And I love, it just kind of encapsulates, I think, what the book is about in terms of um, the solidarity between, um, between communities. Um, and... So I think that is something that we have definitely lost. And that's why I also end it in 1981, because that we see from the 1980s onwards, uh, this kind of dismantling um, of, of solidarity. It's not that thing, everything was great and there weren't divisions. Of course there were. But there was a solidarity to a greater extent than we have today. And then I think the second thing um, is, is disruption. It's disruption, but especially um, economic disruption. I think that often we like to devoid uh, class from race today. And it is definitely more complicated than it was. Um, you know, mostly back then you could say most black and brown people were, were, were all working class and that's not the same as it is today. But 
I think disruption and realizing that actually we're not going to get anywhere just by signing petitions and uh, like tweeting about things. I mean, that's what I love to do, but it's not not going to make much change, unfortunately. But it is it's what disrupts. It's why I am so heartened by all the strikes that we see because it is only by taking action that is disruptive will we see any great change and especially economic disruption um taking away our labor taking away our labor in droves is uh, is the kind of thing that that leads uh, leads to change in light of recent revelations such as the radiation experiments on Punjabi women in Coventry during the 60s, which make more sense in light of me reading the Depro Prevo chapter because it makes sense of then how the lack of consent for Asian women in medicine was just a commonplace idea at this point by the sounds of things. And then on top of that, we've had manifestations of Asian anti-blackness evident in instances like the hair shop situation that's still ongoing. Now, how do you see these events being influenced by the history that precedes it? and also influencing and shaping the current discourse on race and activism? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, and yeah, I was shocked about the, the the radioactive... I mean, they call it radioactive chapati, they call it radioactive roti, they're really missing a trick there. Um, I, I didn't... I, I hadn't come across that in my research. And I was like, are you, are you kidding me? There's, there's more out there. There's more examples of, uh, yeah, of brown women's um, rights and bodies just being completely violated. Um, and so, okay, in terms of two questions, you're asking about what's, uh, yeah, how was influenced by what preceded it and then kind of how, what comes after. I think, um, okay, so for the 60s, as we've seen, brown women were not, uh, brown women and brown women's bodies were, were seen as kind of uh, open business. We see that with virginity testing, um, which happened on brown women coming into the country. Um, we see that with things like Deepa Provera, um, that consent that uh, bodily integrity and dignity were not uh, yeah were not afforded to to brown and black women in the same way um, and so I see that as I mean that basically fits in with it, it's not surprising given the narrative I know of the 60s and 80s um, that that happened I there was no part of me that thought oh that's strange yeah like, <laughs> that's, that's a shock that's a shock yeah like <laughs> Oh, that is how that goes against everything that I know about that time. No, no, it fits in. It fits in completely. I mean, it still has the ability to to disgust and disappoint, yeah. but um, definitely not surprised that 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 also happened. And there's more that we don't know about as well, yeah. right? Um, and then, but in terms of talking about today and then that incident you're talking about in in Peckham, yeah, like now this is really interesting because yeah, we are at a time um, when. I think it's a perfect example of that we have very little appreciation of our commonalities as oppressed minorities. And it shows just kind of how far we've come since the 80s or how, yeah, how far backwards we've gone since the 80s. So a lot of people are talking about that incident in terms of um, this kind of like colonial divide and rule and how a lot of, I mean, we're at the stage now where like, I can't remember where... Um, where the gentleman was from, the manager of the store. But speaking kind of in terms of the Indian community, a lot of Indians in particular think they're better than everyone else. You know? And I'm saying this as being embedded in this community. And so speaking from that experience of seeing this happen, and there's a lot, a lot of anti-blackness. Um, a lot also Islamophobia within um, uh, Sikhs and uh, Hindus. And... 
there's a lot of Indians, for example, who voted for Brexit. About, I think, 40% of Indians voted for Brexit based on anti-immigration arguments. They might say, oh, no, it's for business, um, but it's it's mostly anti-immigration. And so I think the Peckham incident really kind of highlights all of that, highlights where we are today in terms of the the fragmentation within our communities and not just the incident itself, but I think the reaction to that incident those who are coming to the defense of the manager versus the defense of the black woman who who was strangled by him. You know, and it's really interesting. I've watched those videos, unfortunately, again and again and again. So I'm trying to make sense of all of this. I'm like, yes, she is also lashing out at him, but there's just no possible defense for wrapping your, your hands around someone's neck. And the fact that that is a reaction, that is an instinct of that man, shows this really deep-seated uh, anti-blackness that we have that the conversation started to be had in 2020 with Black Lives Matters, but um, it's still really, really embedded um, today. And yeah, I think it shows, unfortunately, I mean, the, the kind of sad state of affairs that we've come to in the last, uh, last 30, 40 years. My last question, and I absolutely enjoy the last hour or so that we've been talking about this, and there's so much more that we could discuss, like even even the bit that you commented about how diversity in the police force, like that's worked out, right? And that itself is probably a podcast in its own right. But I wanted to ask, considering you've written this book, and uh, I don't know how other people have taken to it, but I genuinely think it's one of the best books that I've had the pleasure to read. Do you have any other projects in the pipeline? Are there any other underexplored historical events or stories that you're interested in kind of researching more? Like, do you have anything planned? Yeah, absolutely, because I'm a sucker and apparently want to keep, <laughs> keep keep doing this kind of stuff. Um, yeah, one, I think there's, there's definitely still some unfinished business with this book. Um, you know, I'd... There are, for example, um, and I'm glad it's not just coming from me. People have asked me as well. They're like, um, and so when are we going to have a, a Grunwick film? And I'm like, yes, we need a film about Grunwick. Um, interestingly, um, Gurinder Chabba said on Twitter the other day that um, she was wanting to make a film a few years ago, um, but could not get the get it off the ground. Like there's just no funding still for kind of these all uh, all brown casts, which is it's madness, especially from someone like Gurinder Chabba that she can't get this kind of thing greenlit. Um, but yeah, if you know, if you have any, uh, know any filmmakers, then, uh, Runwick definitely used to be a film. Um, and obviously I'd love to be involved with something like that. So there's that. There's also, I think, some work to be done around bringing this, um, the kind of stories to an educational context. Um, a lot, a lot of work to be done in, in that scene. Um, and then I want to keep exploring activism. Um, but I think I want to focus on, on women. Um, and yeah, so that's that's all I can say at the moment. But I think yeah, um, there's there's definitely so much more um, to be done around kind of what what leads to change and who's driving that change. And I'm especially interested in um, I'm still interested in, in movements. I'm interested in individuals, but I'm interested in movements and groups and um, yeah, and what that what that looks like in different places around the world. No. No, thank you. Well, whatever you work on in the future, I will definitely be keeping an eye on it because oh, if this you. book is anything to go by, I'm sure that will be just as exceptional. So no. And yeah, I can only just say thanks once again. Thank you to you. It's been, yeah, it's always a delight to, to, to talk to people about the book, especially people who have yeah, so closely read it. And that's the end of another intriguing podcast episode. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating this podcast. If you're passionate about the work I'm doing and want to support it, consider becoming a paid YouTube member to unlock some cool features or join our Patreon community. 
You can find the links in the description below. Thanks again for tuning in and I'll hopefully see you in the next video. Bye.